0: Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us.
1: Welcome everyone. My name is Catherine McKinnon. I'm a writer and researcher interested in oral histories of migration in Scotland. And I'm so pleased to be joined today by Hannah Rose Thomas and Asa Aldegheri to talk about Asa's wonderful latest book, free to go. So I'm going to hand over to you guys to, to introduce yourselves and then we're going to have a, a fabulous conversation.
2: So I am here. My name is Hannah Thomas. I am an artist and also a PhD researcher with the UNESCO chair in Glasgow. And it's wonderful to be here and i looking forward to our conversation with Isa very much.
0: Mm, it's really great to be here, so much mutual joy. My name is Essa Aldegheri and I am a writer and a research associate with the brilliant UNESCO Raila team at the University of Glasgow and yeah looking forward to our chat today.
2: So we thought that we would begin on this in reflecting on your incredible journey um, with your husband who you refer to as Glad Companion and I wonder whether you could Tell us a little more about what motivated you and GC, as you referred to him, to take on this journey. And can you give us kind of a broad outline of the places you visited and the borders you crossed along the way?
0: Yeah, so this my book, Free To Go, is about a journey that took me and GC, my glad companion, across the world on a motorbike that we shared the driving of. And that journey started in Orkney, and ended up in New Zealand. And it also intertwines a parallel story of unfreedom. So it looks mm. at how it was to cross the world on a motorbike free of most constraints versus how it was to be quite a few years later at home with school-aged children in the pandemic. And so there's a narrative of unfreedoms that covers a calendar year from the 1st of February, 2020 onwards and looks back and almost there's two journeys talking to each other and the different ideas of freedom and unfreedom and who's free to go and who isn't and why um have a conversation across time and also across countries because um, yeah we, we we basically headed out because we were restless and thought excellent let's go by motorbike to new zealand and see what happens and then maybe carry on maybe go further maybe stop and work maybe keep going up latin america we'll you know See what happens, um, and we ended up yeah going in, in a straight line overland as much as geopolitics and and geog- yeah and geography permitted to to New Zealand. Um, so there's lots of different discoveries along the way. Maybe
1: you'd like to tell us a wee bit more about this idea of of uh, unfreedoms, um, mm-hmm. because yeah, they, they're two both so important, freedom and unfreedom, and and maybe you could tell us a bit more about your experience of this or how you see this, you see other people experiencing this on the journey and also at home.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, relatedly, when we were on the journey, GC and I both kept a travel diary, so the same shared small notebook because we were very strict about how much weight we could carry and we only got one book each and a shared notebook and like a shared roll of toilet paper so there was a lot (laughs) that kind of detail that's in the book as well and and we kept the diary and and then years later I found myself in one of the least one of the most constrained places in my mind and in my body that, that I'd ever been in in the lockdown that affected so many humans across the world and in in a sense only through thinking and experiencing unfreedom then my desire to write about freedom came up very strongly and I just had Mm -hmm. to write this story so it, it almost was was ready to come out but I didn't want to write just just another travel book or just another story of someone who you know is lucky enough to be able to go on a motorbike to places, although they're great stories, but I just, I wanted so much to, to explore the idea of unfreedom too. And um, in, in the journey with GC and the motorbike, who's called Mondialita, um, we, we, f- we came up against not being free to go or free to travel because we were refused, for example, a visa to cross Iran from Turkey. Or we were almost deported from Pakistan back to China because of another visa mess up. Um, Or we were only allowed, you know, a transit visa through a country um, that we maybe wanted to stay for longer in quite a few times. And we were outraged as very privileged Europeans with the right passports to be refused, you know, access and and sitting at home during the pandemic feeling deeply the the pain like so many of us did of not being able to visit to travel loved ones I realized again how lucky we'd been to be able to just go and and cross all these borders and even when we felt frustrated at not being free actually you know basically I told my past self get a grip you're fine you're really lucky Um, and it's a matter of you know accident of birth that you got these passports because I'm an Italian citizen and a a Scottish citizen as well so I've always had two passports I've always been free to go between these two countries which are my two homes and in a way the trigger of wanting to write this book if there's one moment in time was Scotland being taken out of the European Union because of Brexit um, which felt that it kind of unraveled the fabric of almost of my family which wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for the freedoms of movement that being part of the EU permitted Um, and so there was there was a desire of writing a story that reflected very much on who gets to go who gets to stay and and i look at three aspects in a way of freedom and unfreedom being free to go which is also the title of the book um, and being free to leave and being free to return because the journey is a return journey it's a there and back again story not to give away any spoilers but um I also think of these in the context of relationship particularly my relationship with GC under the strains of the journey and then parenting and homeworking and homeschooling in the pandemic um there are many nods of mm. solidarity <laughs> so yeah you can you know you're not really free unless you're free to go and also leave and also return and there's a lot of elements of choice in that that many people don't have because of different reasons.
1: I thought that was something that really struck me about the book was the fact that there was such a strong tie between the time that you were writing it and the time that you were you were on your travels like i've rarely read a book that's so powerfully expressed the need it had to be written at that specific time of writing you know it, it was yeah yeah like I really strongly because it was so powerful i felt as a reader the, the need for you to experience that journey through memory and in your head when you were physically constrained and uh, yes it's it's quite a rare thing I think especially in travel narratives where you're more drawn along on the story of the journey Mm. rather than the moment that they're writing it which is generally probably they're not on the journey anymore so Mm. uh, yeah loved it loved that uh, aspect of it among many other aspects
2: oh thank you yeah I found the contrast between I guess your, your very vivid descriptions of the freedom and growing and joy that you experience while on your, is it Mondialita?
0: Is Mondialita, Mondialita was mm-hmm. the name of the motorbike, which my brilliant brother, Lorenzo, um, chose for us. He the did. name of the
2: motorbike. Yeah, I wonder if you can explain <laughs> the name, the origin of the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um,
0: she, definitely she, big red BMW R80 RT um, tourer, And she was built in 1982, which is the year Italy won the World Cup in football, which is is il mondiale, (laughs) uh, which is clearly very important knowledge. (laughs) And then um, we were going to go across the world, which is mondo. And if something is mondiale, it means like, wow, that's just amazing. And mondialita was mondiale. She was amazing. And um, ita is a suffix that denotes like affection but also that something is small and cute which she wasn't she was this massive tum- <laughs> you know, tractor of a diesel bike but um it is an affectionate diminutive so mondialita mm. i think a totally genius name and it really stuck so he oh, was he was funny my brother we, we were in, stopping by in italy where i grew up and getting everything fixed and sorted at the last minute and he made me a coffee and said so what are you going to call this motorbike and I hadn't really thought about it and he was He's like this is going to be like a third person in your marriage and it doesn't have a name <laughs> and it was, it was just great and I've read travel books where you know the non-human travel companion became very much part of the story and part of the journey and I've always loved those um because it's true you know it's it's one of the reasons you are you are able and free to move is this thing that it almost becomes animate but isn't quite
1: and it is i i really enjoyed on this topic of mondialita i really enjoyed that you put in mechanical interludes in the book yes. which are <laughs> both in a different font and they've got a wee uh a wee spanner denoting them uh, yeah. and they they tell us about incidents of which I Maybe mean, Mondelita was not working at peak capacity or there was yeah. some kind of mechanical <laughs> challenge with the Mondelita situation. And what, what was it that made you choose to include these these lovely wee reminders of, of the kind of mechanics of the bike for, for the readers?
0: Well, I really loved reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Um, I, when I first read it, I thought, I've never read a book like this. and But I didn't want to write that kind of book Um and I really appreciated my learning about motorbike maintenance as part of my journey of you know freedom of fear or of thinking girls don't do that or that you know that kind of Mm -hmm. aspect so I thought no I'll put those in and also one of the few things that we carried with us through the whole of the journey was a brilliant book called the Haynes motorbike maintenance manual for our ATRT motorbikes um so you know books came and go came and went books come and go but that book didn't and um, it was like a passport you know we always had to check we've got that we've got that we've got that and um I wanted to put some of that spirit into the book as well of how this was yeah a really important part of the journey this motorbike and taking care of her and you know being aware of how she worked was important and if she didn't work we would we would have stopped as we had few mm. times and also they were funny <laughs>
1: <laughs> they were really funny i also really enjoyed how the fact of of the bike was such a connection between you and so many people you met on the journey like motorbike enthusiasts or the mechanics um do you know what i mean you did at times in the journey travel by public transport where yeah. it wasn't possible to be on the bike so what was the contrast between those those sections
0: yeah well we we arrived to pakistan um and and realized that we would timed it spectacularly badly because the monsoon was just starting and driving a motorbike in the monsoon was stupid and dangerous we tried and it was (laughs) good idea and (laughs) So a pal let us leave the motorbike in his garage in Islamabad and we took public transport up the Karakoram and across into China, Mm -hmm. having realised after researching it then that if we'd wanted to take Mundialita through China, we'd have had to pay a state uh, accompanier, you know, basically Mm -hmm. a sort of marked person who would check on us and follow us quite a lot every day to go with us. Um, And so this was basically a way of the state stopping us going where the state didn't want Mm -hmm. us to go. So, Mm Because public transport tickets for foreigners were limited in number and there were places you couldn't go. And all these kind of Mm -hmm. realisations that only came as we were travelling through China. We spent Mm -hmm. 10 weeks there in total. And the contrast was very strong. On one hand, it was quite relaxing not being responsible for your own life in crazy, crazy traffic you know it sounds a bit crazy but it was quite nice to just sit on a bus and not mm. think I can't do anything about this I'm not driving I'll just shut my eyes <laughs> but um, it was also really frustrating to not be free to choose how long we stayed in a place where we where we went how we got there but we discovered new and different things were not always easy through that which I guess is part of the mm. point of traveling
2: yeah yeah Yeah, remember you write in your book about the yeah that ordeal the experience in asia and and as europeans with who as europeans who are so used to easily cross borders and so your encounters with them by border related bureaucracy and that frustration but also the contrast with refugee journeys and those who truly know about impassable journeys and exactly yeah just found that parallel really interesting and in yeah. your narrative and i wonder if yeah if there's anything you wanted to share on that
0: in thank you yeah i i really wanted to i really wanted that to come across because for decades i've worked with organizations supporting migrant people and in solidarity with migrant people um of many different kinds if we do want to classify migrant people but um i and as someone who was born of facilitated migration and whose children, you know, are are a result of two countries, people from two countries falling in love and living together and making a life together. I've always felt really strongly that travel literature doesn't really talk about the inequalities of why some people get to go and have crazy adventures in the Karakoram or the Gobi Desert or these exotic places or Syria or wh- whereas people who come from those countries don't get respected for the travels and the journeys Mm. that they have had to make, which are many times more arduous than any hardship that I ever went through during the Mondialita journey, for example. Um, And so the the fact that I found discomfort and rage when, for, for example, traveling through China, because I couldn't understand the language and I was struggling to master it, and we were nearly deported. And all these things Mm -hmm. were basically because I was confronting my privileged assumption as a European that I, as an individual, mattered and that people Mm -hmm. should care if I was cross and tired, and that they should help me and that they should be grateful that I was trying to speak their language, which I suddenly, you know, well, not suddenly, incrementally, and then suddenly realized had been an assumption I'd carried with me through Europe, through the Middle East, because I'm a speaker of Arabic, um, through India, because people were speaking in English, through Pakistan, because, you know, all the countries where people were, you know, welcoming and kind and, and all the, you know, the generosity that you do encounter when, when traveling, the moment I didn't encounter that, I was outraged. <laughs> and, and, and I realized painfully that I had been brought up as a European in a, with a very different kind of sense of, um this you know what is the size of a country for example china's so vast geographically and the kind of history of, of millennia which i still can't quite get my head around when it when it comes to china um, was not something that i i was prepared for with my kind of tiny european history mind um, certainly not something that i was prepared for as a european who'd always been you know able to master languages unable to be welcomed and able to manage to get along with people mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't that there were not experiences of generosity and kindness in China it's that there were also difficulties which again as I said I was outraged by because I was this spoiled wee girl you know in a part of myself and that was I think the hardest thing to realize in that whole journey all the assumptions I had about of course I should be able to do this and there's lots of reasons why actually why should you and I don't know many travel books that look at that way of being in the world, which assumes that some people have a right to travel across that border and some people don't. And why is that? Um, When we traveled from Greece to Turkey and then south to Syria because we were refused a visa to Iran, we went across the same path that many people travel in the opposite direction and have traveled in the opposite direction recently Um, trying to get into Europe overland from Syria to Greece, uh, to Turkey to Greece, and thinking of that journey now after, the, because when we were in Syria it was before the war, so we travelled through a country that was at peace, although the signs were there, but um, it was before the war, and so having lived through the years of the war and having many friends who are from Syria who did make that journey with huge difficulty. Um, I just thought, I have to put that in the book. It can't, how can it remain unspoken, this massive disparity in the right to cross borders? Like, I could have been born there instead of in Scotland. So those thoughts are still very much in my head. Mm -hmm. But I I would love to see more conversations within the sphere of travel writing, whatever that sphere may even be, um, that, that touch on this. There's a there's a part in the
1: book that I really uh, I really loved and I thought it illustrated uh, this so well where you're uh, in Edinburgh and you're during the pandemic and and you're just distraught because of everything and because you're 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 not able to to see your family and visit your family and you meet a friend is it a Syrian uh, friend and, and, yeah. and do you want to tell us about what happened there
0: Yeah, so throughout the book the present-day narrative is alternated with the past journey and there's a point early on in March 2020 when everything is already closed down in Italy when everything is about to close down here in Scotland that I meet um, in Edinburgh I bump into a Syrian friend and she says how are you doing like lovely friend and all the kind of beautiful Arabic greetings of affection and and i say to her oh, i'm feeling really sad and really worried because my family are in italy and it's a lockdown and there's the pandemic and i don't know what to do and and then she hugged me and said "Ah, oh, i know it's it's really hard when your loved ones are far away and you can't get to them and i just had a moment of look at yourself you know telling my you know telling myself look at yourself you know nothing you know nothing at all really relatively of being separated from your loved ones who you may never see again. Although I was experiencing it in that moment, but here was a woman whose family were dispersed through Scandinavia and the rest of Europe who could probably never go back to her city because it was destroyed and who was consoling me mm-hmm. with a generosity of spirit that shook me. And still I think about it and I get quite emotional because she she found that kindness and I was busy complaining um not yeah so i i still find myself really um stopped in my words to be able to describe that that level of generosity of, of still being able to to console someone for the pain that you carry and have mm-hmm. carried for much longer than them
1: yeah i thought it was a really beautiful moment of solidarity and yeah, kindness from, yeah. from your friends and but Talking about generosity of spirit, like, uh, you know, you've touched on the, the sort of challenges that you faced in, in China and, and, you know, what, why some of those things were a challenge for you. But at one point you described GC as being the one to point out the things about China that he was finding interesting and generous. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I really feel like the whole book is you doing this and, and sharing with us, the readers, things that you find interesting about these places, the history and the little sights that you see and the thing on the wall of the bar and stuff and the generosity that you you receive from people and also that you show to people and throughout the book as well Um, and i just found the whole thing so imbued with a, a sense of generosity of spirit um and i wondered would you like to say a bit more about your experience of generosity both in the time and the process of writing and then also like during the journey as well
0: yeah I think it's it felt to me very true that in China GC was the one cheering me up and then after China in Australia I was the one cheering him up because he enjoyed Australia less and than, than I did so I think generosity is a is a really important thing in the world I think we live in a potentially we live in a world that's potentially so full of abundant generosity whether it's the natural world or People you do meet who are kind and welcoming. And we, I, I'm absolutely certain that we could not have completed the journey without the, the generosity of others on the way, whether it was in uh, technical mechanical interludes helping to fix the bike, or whether it was showing us how to get to a place in the dark, or whether it was showing us what food meant on a menu that we didn't understand. All the things are cumulative. Um, mm-hmm and make for discovery make for what you know what really makes they make a journey these little discoveries when you see something that you didn't see before because someone has opened it for you I think that's a huge huge generosity and in the writing of the book the generosity was there in the desire to share this story for others um the desire to share experiences of of freedom and open roads and the desire to share conversations that come from writing a book and putting it into the world I would love to hear about what people think and to start different conversations about travel writing and women's um, ways of traveling around the world and being free and not free Um, I think everything is is poorer without without generous touches because everything becomes formatted and formal everything becomes like you know it's it's the difference between well being welcomed into someone's house for a cup of tea and having to cross a border control with security guards do you know like there's the formal official requirements for getting through life for moving between places and then there's the things that are the colour and the joy um i know which one i prefer although some argue that one you know that they're both necessary but i know that i know which ones i prefer if you have to choose so
2: yeah thinking of further on that theme of generosity of spirit and um, crossing borders as well. You write of that your experience crossing the borders into motherhood and I don't know whether you, Mm. and I was wondering what your thoughts are, reflections are of how you carried that same like a spirit of adventure, of generosity, um, of joy into, into navigating motherhood, into navigating the challenges of a global pandemic together as well.
0: Yeah. One, um, I love poetry and poems and one poem that really, poems helped me throughout this book to, um, poems of others expressed and phrased what I wanted to say so much better than me because that's what poetry can do. And there's a beautiful poet called Liz Berry and she wrote a poem called The Republic of Motherhood, which is extraordinary. And I thought, what an amazing image that, that motherhood is a republic and once you go once you're in you you, you can never leave because it's all, you always will have crossed into that republic um, and for me my my babies were all born very close together so i had 3 kids under 2 for 6 months at one point in my life
2: wow yeah mm. so
0: that was hard that was a that was an experience of physical unfreedom and of change in expectations of what i or couldn't or should or shouldn't do in the world as a woman who was now a mother and then they grew up and then well they they grew and then the pandemic happened and the lockdown happened and we were all at home together and we couldn't leave again and so I I kept on having huge not quite flashbacks but you know body memories of what it was like to not be able to leave the house and what it was like to be expected that you know I would be the one by society not by a GC in himself as a lovely man but that you know I would be the the default carer um, which is a an experience shared by many women who are mothers across the world during the lockdowns of the pandemic um, and so that was a big part of also of wanting to reflect on unfreedoms and, and freedoms within the context of being very fortunate in my family and health and where I live and you know that there are no huge hardships but there are a lot of hard questions um in my mind about why is it that this happens to so many women mm-hmm. that we're free to go and to be and to do and then we have babies and then we're not and that's just the mm-hmm. way it is and then we take on part-time jobs and then we get less paid and then we find ourselves unable to to do what we thought we could do um so many conversations around that as well and I thought it was an interesting way to contrast how how free I'd been in my body like I was literally zipping across the world really fast on a red motorbike and then I wasn't um so cho- choices yes but also consequences of choices that you don't have you know you don't necessarily as a woman have control over the wider expectations that are part of those consequences so yeah
1: I wanted to ask more about your discussions of rage in the book which I think are quite tied uh, to that and and to other experiences but um, yeah because I think particularly from a woman's perspective that's perhaps not an emotion that we are encouraged to feel. Mm. Um,
0: Yeah I would agree that it's not an emotion we're encouraged to feel. mm. I refer in free to go to another book, which is called Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Shemali, I would recommend it. It's really interesting, well written, very thought provoking exploration of women's rage, um, and how why we're not encouraged to feel it or express it, and how it can then transform into depression or anxiety, and how actually, there are ways to make it into a a, a power, (laughs) in a way. Um, and i yeah i saw so much of that kind of corrosive rage in women during the pandemic who were stuck at home and in myself um and during the mondialita journey there were different different ways in which rage manifested itself at being you know fr- born of frustration largely at not being free to go or to do um so during the mondialita journey and also during the present tense narrative of unfreedom I try to explain how rage can be a really powerful almost fuel to continue the motorbike metaphor to keep on going in a way that is transformative rather than corrosive there you go I said that well yeah so for me the you know the the point of, of rage is it's really interesting how women are not encouraged to express it you know as a physically explosive or verbally explosive thing um it's yeah it's it's not an acceptable mm. gendered way of of expressing rage but the alternative is 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 deathly it destroys women from the inside like an acid and so yeah I think um situations that are enraging happen um in the book whether that is raging at wider constraints of society or raging at a taxi driver in China who assaults GC and then we get into a fight. Me and him, me and the taxi driver. And so, yeah, these different ways in which rage kind of comes up and and is manifested through the body, Mm. comes up in the spirit and then is manifested through the body. And as as a wee girl growing up in Italy, there were so many things that girls didn't do. We didn't play football. We didn't do any sport other than basically long distance running and that until we were 15 and then no more we didn't drive motorbikes girls didn't get scooters when they were 14 all the boys did and so another thing that came out during the writing of this book was me realizing looking back how much rage did I hold in um as I was as I was growing up not because of my family my mum and dad and brother are lovely but the whole kind of overarching world I was in that told we girls you don't do that you don't do that you don't do that this is what you do and all the things we we could do were quite restrictive and domestic and nice (laughs) and I thought ah, okay I have to explore this because I I have daughters now and, and I hope that they grow up being able to manifest rage differently
1: i look forward to <laughs> sorry i look forward to the idea of your daughters and other girls teenage girls reading this reading about mm. your adventures and
0: uh, yeah things. yeah that's another another um reading other books other stories about motorbike journeys or travel books there's mm. yeah not not huge amounts of exploring the yeah but women women traveling and what it means to do that in a, you know, as a, as a female, as someone who's expected to manifest rage and emotion in certain ways. Um, mm. That's another thing I'd like to read more about, maybe.
2: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, those kind of that thread that you reflect on about the, I guess, liberation from gendered roles that Mondialita gave you, mm. learning to drive Mondialita and driving her across the world. And I another thread that um, related to rage as well. I found really interesting is the reflections on the story of the Odyssey mm. and the figure of Penelope <laughs> as a wife. I think you write something along with para- a paragon of wise, wifely fidelity and the metaphor for faithful waiting. Mm. You wonder about the reality of, of whether she felt lost or despairing or angry as well. And I found that really interesting for you to drawing that drawing and reflecting upon that in the course of your writing I don't know whether there's any thoughts on that you wanted to share
0: yeah I think myths are really important things for humans we 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 keep on returning to them and uh, one set of myths that I was brought up with from my culture are the kind of Latin (coughs) and Greek ones we um read at school, and my high school was very, very about like classical literature. So we read the Odyssey, and and I remember thinking at the time, as a teenager, that sounds really boring being Penelope. <laughs> but now, as a <laughs> wife and as a mother, and as you know, having experienced the lockdown of waiting and being at home and waiting and being at home and every day doing the mm-hmm. same things with children, you know, it's like everyone. So many, not everyone, so many people um have shared this same experience with me. Um, of being being at home and waiting being at home and waiting and it made me think of Penelope in a completely different way not you know before I dismissed it as oh she's so boring let's think about the glorious epic heroes at battle and traveling the world and 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 I remember thinking what what did she feel like and I know that lots of other women in, in particular have written about this and have written stories from her perspective and I've loved reading all of them they've been brilliant because yeah what did she feel we don't know because guess what the perspective is from the male hero's story um or certainly one that admires in places that is centrally heroic rather than you know the, the idea of creative resistance or endurance or doing and undoing strategically, which is what Penelope did if you think about it. For 20 years. Like obviously it's a myth, not a real story, but imagine waiting and creatively resisting for 20 years, weaving and unweaving and, and knowing that you'll just have to hold out. I found a lot of um, inspiration in that change of change of way of thinking about Penelope. And it was always presented as a dichotomy. You're either Ulysses or Odysseus who travels the world the adventurer type or you're Penelope who waits at home and part of the journey of writing this book for me was realizing that actually you can be both why do you have to be either and I think the dichotomy was again quite gendered you know if you're a woman then show me one Homeric epic hero that's female and not a goddess <laughs> there aren't I don't think there are any so again you know who do you identify with and it's possible to grow up and realize you don't have to be limited by what what girls do and don't do so there is that and and the other tradition of myths that I grew up with was the Scottish Celtic ones that involved mm-hmm. um yeah colder seas um than homers and creatures like the selkie and other other stories of female transformation I suppose mm-hmm. so I draw on them as well because I think we need myths very deeply to make sense of the world around us. Mm. Asa, is there something that you
1: would really like to talk about about the book that you've not had a chance or maybe what's the question that people never ask you that you always think God I'd love to talk about that and none of these folk ever asked me about it? Maybe about the language like I, I really enjoyed the, the multilingual aspects of your journey and I know that you are somebody that thinks very deeply about language and multilingualism and the role of of communicating with people in in different tongues so maybe you'd like to tell us a wee bit about about that.
0: Yeah that's a great question. So in myself I was brought up as a bilingual person with Italian and English both always there and I am bringing up my children in the same way. And so, languages have always been a thing, and they've always been something that I have, with ease and joy, collected—not in a creepy way, but being able to, <laughs> be able to acquire as as a joyful way of seeing the world differently, and experiencing the world differently, because that's what a different language does. It opens up new, you know, windows of seeing, seeing and describing, and seeing and thinking. Um, and it was wonderful to travel through the world and be able to speak to people in the language that is that is of their country and their place. And it was very challenging to find that I couldn't master, as it were. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting word, isn't it? I couldn't um, learn other languages like Mandarin. I found really, really hard and languages, I suppose, are everywhere in this book. Um, and the the use of language matters a lot to me so I suppose that's why I return to poetry throughout the book because that's a particularly uh, refined or perhaps intense way of using language to describe the world and the feelings of the world and one of the catalysts as I said for writing the book was the self-imposed national tragedy that I still believe is Brexit which was framed in language as languages of fear and of restriction mm-hmm. and of closure and I wanted to write a book that was not that that was using language to raise different ways of thinking and seeing borders and other people so yeah language
1: I'm glad you did write that book um,
0: <laughs> Thank you. I hope many people read it and enjoy it. Shall I do a wee reading now at the end? Yay! What shall I read? Um, I might read a wee bit from the beginning without giving too much away. So I'm going to read a bit that describes leaving the UK on a ferry and then a bit about how the book began to be written in a way. So, 13 winters ago, I sailed under that same bridge, the fourth rail bridge, out across the river on a ferry heading south to the Belgian port of Zeebrugge. This was BC, before children, or as they themselves would put it, in the olden days. Below me, the motorbike, burdened and untested, waited in the hold with other vehicles. Beside me stood the man I'd married just over a year before. We were on our way to New Zealand, overland, as much as geography and geopolitics would permit. I carried with me many hopes and worries, but the possibility of closed borders across Europe was not one of them. My most immediate concern was that I already felt seasick and we weren't even out of the estuary. Out on the deck I gripped the rail and looked out onto the waters of the Firth of Forth, dark beyond the engines churning, thin strings of distant lamps showing where the sea stopped and the land began. As a child growing up in Italy, I had learned that this river marked the uttermost northern border of the Roman Empire. Our teachers solemnly told us that beyond those waters, in what is now Fife, lived enemy barbarians. I grinned at my husband, blue-eyed and fife-bred, and felt excitement win over nausea. As the ferry slid under the great red firework, uh, fretwork, the great red fretwork of the rail bridge. a train rumbled over our heads, taking commuters home to their families, while we popped the cork from a bottle of fizzy wine and drank to our journey. I poured some bubbles into the fourth, a libation of sorts, to whatever entities protect travellers. And their freedoms. Stories arrive through your ears and eyes and skin. They settle among your bones as you sleep and when the time is right you let them out so they can be free to go and grow. My nonno told me that, I think, or maybe I told myself. Either way, coffee and paracetamol have worked their magic and I feel ready for the day now. Anxiety has coalesced into urgency, the need to weave a story about travel and change, freedom and fear, wide horizons and frontiers. Weave it like a sail for navigating times of increasing restrictions. On a beloved motorbike, I had crossed borders that are now impassable, changed my understanding of freedom, embraced an adventure which did not end with Mondialita's burning. I want to share it like all travellers share tales A gift from the road behind for the journey ahead, whatever it may bring.
1: So thank you so much, Asa, those are those are some beautiful words to end on and to take with Mm -hmm. us uh, wherever we go after recording this or after listening to this. So thank you so much, uh, both of you, Hannah and Asa, for such a wise and joyful and delightful conversation. And I hope that everybody will try and track down a copy of the book and, and read it and enjoy it as much as we all have. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website
2: of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.